Do you remember that old joke, three comdis professionals walk into a bar and, oh, wait, you've never heard it before? We haven't either. But what if three comdis professionals did walk into a bar, sit down at a table, and have thoughtful conversations about a whole host of topics? What if you could eavesdrop and maybe even pull up your own chair? And what if that bar was actually a coffee shop because at least one of us would inevitably fall asleep or want to dance after a couple glasses of wine? This series is that conversation in the coffee shop where you get to listen in on thoughtful discussions about a variety of topics from the perspective of a medical SLP, a school-based SLP, and a professor in communication sciences and disorders. Grab a drink, pull up a chair, and let's get started. I hope you did really grab a drink and take a seat and just imagine that we're all hanging out together because that's kind of what we were thinking of when we talked about this idea of all of us coming together and having substantive conversation. Uh, In this episode, we're going to examine the transition from grad school to work. We're going to talk about getting started at our first jobs. We're going to talk about what surprised us. We're going to talk about what we relied on most from our training, evidence, uh, and all sorts of fun stuff. So stick with us. Uh, Maddie, I think I'd like to start with you. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about your very first job. You get your degree. Mm -hmm. You get your (laughs) license. Let's start there. My very first job was in uh, just outside of uh, Duke University in North Carolina, and I worked for a company called Novacare. I remember the interview back in the day we had expense accounts. I, my word, we would go out to lunch. We would just collaborate. I absolutely loved it. It was a nursing, uh, uh, nursing, skilled nursing facility. Loved the people I worked with. Loved my team. Loved the patients. And what a beautiful part of the country. It was. It was. I'm from the Midwest. Um, Actually, I'm from all over the place, born in Japan. I've worked all around the world. Well, not all around, in a couple of of settings as a speech pathologist. Settled. I've worked in Washington State. I've worked a number of places as a speech pathologist. North Carolina was my East Coast. It was absolutely beautiful. Such a different culture. Um, Just loved Loved, loved, loved living there. And it's my first job. And it was a very wonderful experience. My supervisor wasn't there all that often. I remember that. I remember oh, having questions on what do I do for the for the swallowing and the COGCOM and all of this. It wasn't even called that back then. Um, so I reached out to my team members and um, other speech pathologists that I knew from grad school. Very positive experience for me. Were you in one skilled nursing facility or did you cover several? Just one. Mm. Just one. Met my very first. I don't know. That was really where I remember. I knew that in clinic I had my own one-on-one clients. But in my clinical fellow, I just remember. I remember my own first desk. I remember my own first calendar my own first pencil holder. (laughs) I just felt like I had arrived and it was just a very exciting moment. 
it was an exciting clinical fellow. It was great. Mm, that's great. Mm-hmm. How about yours, Janet? Yeah, my first job, um, well, I had so many rapid transitions, right? I graduated with my master's from the University of Iowa. A week later, I got married. A month later, my husband and I moved to Seattle, Washington. And then um, I started my first job. So my first job was um, a specialty clinic. It was called Speech, Language, and Learning Services and focused on learning disabilities, kids with language and reading challenges. And then I had some adult parts of my caseload, stuttering and voice. Um, I do remember... During the interview, I was really interested in the work, but kind of being like a little disappointed in the space because it felt a bit dental office-y, um, <laughs> like because it was in a, you know, an office complex. Um, so I, I think there was a little bit of that reality of I thought I'm going to be a specialist in a children's hospital. And yeah, I had the specialist piece that I was developing, but the the site was a little less glamorous. Um I had so much to learn and I will say that I had a very involved clinical fellowship supervisor. She officed in the same building with me. She co-signed every report and we did some really deep assessments. And so I, I learned a tremendous amount from her through about assessment, interpreting assessment and even dynamic assessment. So sort of seeing if the person is at this level what level of support do they need to succeed, which in turn informed um, goal setting. So I'm eternally grateful to Eleanor Kriegsman. Um, she's passed, but um, she was just a really influential person in, in my first job. Um, I, I think I knew that I liked kids and I, I wanted to work with kids in some capacity. I didn't realize how much I would be working with families. Mm-hmm. And I really, um, I really grew to enjoy that. At first, I felt a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, who am I? I don't have any kids. How am I supposed to advise a parent? Just very, very young and inexperienced. Um, but I started to trust my training and trust my instincts and really grew to have some deep relationships with parents as they were supporting their kids with language and reading problems. It reminds me of when I, I, this is slightly off track, but I remember when I first got married, I'm like, oh, fell in love with my husband. And then I, he came with a family (laughs) and I had to deal with, you know, not deal with his family. I I grew to love his family. His mother and sister and father were were great, but it's, you know, sometimes you think you work with this client or this child or this patient, and then you realize, oh, let's, let's dial it open a little bit and and look at everything. Yeah. I have one um, story that I, that I did want to say. Um, I remember just it took a little while for me to kind of find my clinical style. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember observing two clinicians with extremely different styles. And one of them I kind of termed the earth mother. So she would come into her office. She did very child-directed um, treatment with very young children. 
and she kicked off her shoes. She wore like flowy long skirts. She had the room set up so the child would kind of discover and then she would weave in um, whether it was question asking or two, you know, two to three word sentences, whatever. She just wove it in. So she was masterful in that. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And I'm not that. (laughs) And then I had another um, person that I was mentored by and she was a very stern behaviorist. Like what are the three rules? This rule, this rule, this rule, have the child repeat them. What happens if you follow the rules? You get this reward. Um, And she had like, just physically, she was a very tall person and just like had a kind of imposing presence and kids listened to her and responded. And I remember having this moment where I I thought both of these people are extremely effective and I don't feel like my style is going to be exactly either of those. So it took me some time to just kind of find my way with my own clinical style. It's important for students to remember because they'll watch YouTube videos or they'll watch a clinician or something. And they, I remember in a CSD 450 and um, one of the students raised her hand. She said, professor, how do I be like that? And it's like, you, you don't have to be like that. You be you. Right. You, you do you understand the skill. There's some structure, but you bring your personality mm-hmm. and your own style to it. Yeah. 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 What about you, Katie? Uh, Well, it's interesting because this is where I have some overlap with Maddie. Uh, I worked uh, at my first job was um, for a rehab company as well. I worked for what NovaCare became, which that iteration was called Rehab Works. And to understand that first job, you have to understand when I got it, which was in 2000, which was right when all of the therapy caps hit. And uh, PPS came in and at an energetic level, it was a, it was a tough time to be in rehab therapies, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I entered my career at that time. Can you remind me, sorry, what was, what's PPS again, just for people who are not familiar with that? So, Maddie, it's been years. I don't remember what the acronym stood for exactly, but I thought it was like um, it, it was like a controlled payment system. And maybe a listener will call and be like, Katie, that's not the letters. But it was the notion that you had a cap uh, and you only had so many sessions uh, that were mm-hmm. comprised of units. And after you exhausted those units, everything had to be authorized mm-hmm. and uh, prior authorized. And so there, there, were, there were no single placement uh, nursing home situations. There were um, a lot of different bits and pieces that were... Um, that were in different settings Mm -hmm. that uh, became my first job. Now, the benefit of that is I worked a little bit in pediatric clinics. I floated to nursing homes and my primary job was working with adults with developmental disabilities, Mm -hmm. which ended up being like a masterclass that I didn't know I needed, but I am sure glad I got. Um, Wow. And so relevant to your work now. 
and probably why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, that particular clinical population taught me everything I didn't know about being a speech language pathologist. And I'm eternally grateful for that. The setting was a tough time, though. It was a tough time to find a first job as a speech mm. language pathologist. There were a lot of transitions back then and a lot of bucking of the system because it was such free reign. And then it, it everything got pulled in, which was good. But it was a it was a transition period. I remember that. I looked up its prospective payment system. Yeah, that was a big shift. And we've had some other big shifts in, you know, skilled nursing or just in the medical settings. But one thing about our field is it's it's you know, it's very dynamic. Sounds like all of us have had just careers that have just been very um, dynamic and shifting according to opportunities and interests of us. Absolutely. In fact, um, when I came down to interviewing for that first job, I was looking at, I was very interested in aphasia and language in children. And one of the reasons I didn't go the aphasia direction um, was because... um, dysphagia was becoming such a large part of the caseload and I didn't really have an interest in that. So <laughs> you still don't, I remember. I still you, don't. No. <laughs> we met at St. Cloud. And I'm Me like, oh, either, Janet. <laughs> yeah. Maddie says, I love dysphagia. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't. I don't. <laughs> no. Oh, thank goodness. We all compliment each other. Absolutely. Um, Janet, you made a comment earlier. Um, you know, you you and I both started in some great spots, and you did too, Katie. And for the students that are listening, it's not necessarily where you start in your career, but where you go. I know there have been students that graduate and they just, you know, have, uh, they just don't start their careers off well for a variety of reasons. And um, I, I hear from some of them and they're, you know, disheartened and what do I do? Where do I go? And they think it's going to be this great career. Um what did go ahead? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think the key there is just to always remember mm-hmm. it's where you start mm-hmm. and, and what is it that you're learning? Mm-hmm. Um, it, mm-hmm. it took me a little time to learn that there was a fair amount of suffering that kind of came out of that system. And mm-hmm. it wasn't a person. The people I worked with were lovely, but I think I just happened to enter into the career at a time where everybody was feeling these huge shifts and not knowing how to kind of find their footing with that. Uh, So even if your first job is not what you're thinking it's going to be, that's okay because holy cow, there's a lot of other jobs out there. And yeah, I love what you said about, um, I was thinking something similar about like, what did, what did you learn from that? And um, because I I was reminded of that. Sometimes we think like, why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to train myself even at this stage of life to just shift that and say, what is this teaching me? Oh, I love that. It just say gives that, a say that again. Say that again. Um, instead of saying, why is this happening to me? Ask, what is this teaching me? Oh, I love that. I might put that on my social media calendar. That's huge. It's that positive, shifting to the positive. And yeah, and not in a sort of um, Pollyanna, you know, 
no, not acknowledging the bad, but just like, what am, what am I learning from this? And I was thinking of Katie's, uh, you know, your, your piece about the learning that you had with those adults with developmental disabilities and how much that informed the direction you went and, and your work even today. And I think each of us probably has some, some stories like that. And I think what's so interesting is how those kind of formative experience at your first job, no matter the first job, can can have these like tendrils that are woven into yes. the way you practice. I never take for granted a symbol referent relationship. I never assume that the symbol is understood to be the thing symbolized. And who taught me that? were all of those clients that had names for things but couldn't use them. Mm. And it's it's profound learning and it impacts how I practice every day to this day. Wow. So how cool is that, right? That's not yep. something I could have ever anticipated. Mm-hmm. I still exchange Christmas cards with um, Steve Thomas. Um, Steve, shout out if you're there. Um, he's... Um, a retired speech pathologist in the Seattle area. And he was just such a strong mentor for me with, um, with individuals who stutter. And I just feel like we, we partnered with a lot of clients, but it was really me having a crash course um, that just deeply supplemented my knowledge about stuttering and how to translate that into the clinical practice and clinical world important to find those mentors, those answers, those role models. Well said. Maddie, how did you get from um, the East Coast back here to the Midwest? <laughs> Went to the, um, good question, my family is from the Midwest. My undergraduate degree was uh, West Coast um, and graduate degrees West Coast, postgraduate work, clinical fellowship, East Coast. But my parents were from Minnesota. And so my husband and I, we lived in England and practiced in England for a while. Oh, wow. Japan. I was born in Japan, so I wanted to go back there. Um, and then just when it came time to raising a family, wanted to be near home. Mm. Maddie, I've got to ask, what were some things? Maybe we're going off script here a little bit. I, we don't really have a script, so I guess it's okay, right? <laughs> practiced in England? I did. What was that like? It was, they didn't want a Yankee teaching their children ours. <laughs> <laughs> I had a wonderful time though. Um, I have Stella Goodread, um, very just, oh my gosh, you know, one of my top five favorite people in the world, Stella Goodread. Um, Stella Evans now, she's married across the pond. And I went to visit her maybe two, three years ago. She's a speech pathologist. Um, I got to practice in the hospitals, practiced in the schools. At that time when I was over there, there wasn't a distinction <clears throat> between a medical or school speech pathologist. You just you practice where you, where you went. Mm-hmm. It was lovely. It was wonderful. It was just, just wonderful. Mm-hmm. I remember singing in my car, um, yeah, I've had some huge struggles in life. And one of the things I, you know, listening to this, I don't want people to think that I have this rosy, rose-colored glasses with careers in life and everything else like that. Um, my happiness is 
hard won, my career is absolutely cherished. And I remember the days in England just being full of excitement. Working with English. Mm. (laughs) One of my kids nannied in New Zealand for a year. And one of the nanny children, one time um, my daughter said, put this in the dishwasher. And the child said, it's dishwasher, not dishwasher. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Calling out the Midwestern. Mm -hmm. Right. You guys, where are some interesting places you have worked? I've, I've been in the metro my whole professional career. And so I've worked with lots of different populations. I would tell you I've taken a tour in that regard. But uh, geographically, I've been fairly place-bound. That's all right. Mm. Yeah, I, um, we moved to the Midwest after being in Seattle. Um, we were there for a, a dedicated amount of time while my husband was doing some training and I was in my first job. Um, so in terms of like my clinical work, I worked some in early childhood in the schools when I came back, when I came to Minnesota, um, did some just like short-term coverage of people here and there. And then honestly, I, I slid into clinical supervision part-time. Um, while my kids were young, I really dialed back the amount of work I was doing to half-time or less. And um, some of that was in the higher ed setting. Um, what I would say is once I completed my, my PhD, I was also a bit, I would I say, geographically committed. Mm-hmm. Um, we've considered other um, options, but when you're in a, in, you, in a family where you've got two professionals, the jobs just, the stars have to align for everybody for mm-hmm. a move to be worth it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, I worked as a master literacy coach with the Minnesota Reading Corps right after doing my PhD. And then I did some part-time teaching at University of Minnesota. I worked at um, a liberal arts college for six years on a year-to-year contract, um, teaching kind of foundational psychology courses. Um, My terminal degree is in educational psychology. So I kind of, to be honest, I kind of purposefully chose to cross over um, because I knew that I was likely to be a bit geographically constrained and that kind of allowed me to have some flex in terms of the kind of, of work that I did. Sure. And then I landed back honestly where I started my higher ed teaching at St. Cloud State, um, but in a different capacity. So coming full circle. Right on. So uh, one of the things that I think is interesting when we're thinking about, especially kind of that first job, but I would say, all along the way, uh, when we think about the role of evidence and we think about our practice in these different settings. Um, Maddie, when you think about the role of evidence or having an evidence base that informs your practice, what comes to mind for you? Continuing education and staying up on, on all of that and having a curious mind. What is the latest here? Are thickened liquids really a wise choice? Ages ago, anybody coughed, cleared their throat, oh, thickened liquids. And now we know that, my goodness, that's not the best choice sometimes at all. Same with the chin tuck, um, cog com, all the advancements. It's having that curious open mind, thinking those questions, what if, 
I got this great CD from a library one time, how to think like Einstein. And I thought, oh, this will be great. I can be smarter. And the whole CD <laughs> nice. was, yeah, we all, I wanted to be smarter anyways. The whole CD was how to ask questions. When you see something, why does the water drain one way down? Why does it always turn the same way down the drain? And that's what Einstein did. What if this, what if that? And with EBP, that's that's what you do. What if that? Can we really push those envelopes and really test, come up with a hypothesis, test it? And, and we're not alone in that. Hmm. When I um, when I first came out of my master's degree program, there was really a a lot of expectation that you don't do cookbook therapy and it's very individualized. It's mapped on the individual. Um, I like that thinking in some ways, but it also created this situation where sometimes you felt like you were just continually inventing programs and approaches and deciding. Um, Then I think with the focus on evidence-based practice, um, research evidence, clinical expertise, family values. I think the immediate shift then came to focus on research evidence as like the big circle and those other two ones as the small ones. And um, what what I've noted with some of my teaching is sometimes there would be this favoring of tightly scripted programs with the most evidence. And I would say the most evidence because they're the easiest to measure. Did you do the program with fidelity? What were the outcomes? And often the outcomes are very tightly defined. So I feel like there was a swing towards heavy favoring of kind of those, I don't know, tightly following the recipe of therapy. And I think there's been in my mind, a bit of a a swing to what I would consider more balanced. So Mm -hmm. I think looking at, you know, what about the role of the clinician with clients and that, that trust and that centering your goal writing on what are the functional outcomes for this client while also relying on what are some um, foundational sort of structures Um, If you want to take the recipe analogy, what would be, like, what are the the core ingredients that have to be there? And what are the pieces I can noodle around with? So if I'm making chocolate chip cookies, maybe I swap out the nuts and I put in pistachios or dark chocolate or cranberries. But I have to have some of those essential ingredients um, to make the whole thing work. So I feel like we're, we're... at a place where there seems like a little bit more balance between client-centered or drawing on clinical expertise, research evidence, and then also, um, I guess, client-centered would be focusing on the, the mindset of the, the person mm-hmm. and their values and the family values. So I, what about you, Katie? What are your thoughts about evidence? And well, to, your, to your you? point, to your point with the cookie, we are ultimately baking language cookies and, you know, um, <laughs> where, and, and I say language cookies because that's where my heart's at. But when you think about a therapeutic outcome, there is a um, cohesive whole that we are looking for. There's some sort of end 
thing that we want to see happen with our clients. And it's not, it's, it's not the cookie partially made. And so when I think about the role of evidence, evidence is what informs me getting to that cookie. I also think what is really interesting is that sometimes you will hit on something that works. And so sometimes you back into it. Um, My favorite example of that is I love task complexity because I think task complexity can replicate the experience of language demands in the brain more accurately than uh, like taking a task apart and working on an intervening one little piece or part at a time. And I remember thinking, gosh, this kind of seems like this is like a thing that's working. Well, it turns out there's an evidence base for that. Now, interestingly enough, it isn't in child language. It came from adult language. Yes. But there was enough cross kind of like um, cross referencing where I'm like, this makes sense. One of the most beautiful phrases in this research article that I I read and I've repeated, they said it has cascading generalization effects. So the Mm -hmm. use of more complex tasks has cascading generalization effects. I'm like that. I want more of that. Right. (laughs) That's what you want Um, on your shirt today. I want, I want cascading generalization effects. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I do think that evidence is so important because it's the driver for why we keep what we keep and why we change what we change, right? Mm. Evidence is why we keep the pistachios and ditch the cranberries or something else. And and so I think that sometimes if you're like, well, I'm doing this because this is the way I've done this, right? And this is the way I'm going to keep doing this. I am concerned if that becomes the orientation only because... I I feel like the kids I have today are not the same kids I had five years ago, which are not the same kids I had 10 years ago. And if you've seen one person with one situation, so you got to have a lot of tools in your toolkit and evidence is what becomes the tools for the toolkit, right? So, Mm. yeah. I love the recipe analogy. Yeah. I I, I haven't had dinner yet, so I'm a little hungry. (laughs) (laughs) My husband, a favorite dinner of ours is um, we um, fry up, I, I don't know, I, I, I love it. It's a comfort food for me, but we, we fry up ground ham, hamburger and we put purple cabbage in. And that's how we've had it for years. We do it in butter. We put a whole stick of butter in and my kids love it. Um, he starts adding celery and Canadian bacon. I'm like, wait a minute, you're just really changing it. <laughs> Seeing, but, but that goes back to what works, what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And having that thinking cap and that curiosity on. One thing I'm really interested in is um, the gathering of practice-based evidence. And mm-hmm. I feel like we're we're on the early ends of that really being maybe as systematic as it might be. So practice-based ev- evidence, um, if that's a new concept to some of the listeners, it's essentially looking at what is happening in practice, what are the results that are working in practice and how do we gather sort of patterns from individual therapists or individual clients and sort of pull those together and make some sense of those trends to say something about kind of like the larger scale trends. So I think there's so much potential in terms of gathering that information and the knowledge of individual therapists 
and pulling it together and that and communicating it to um, others who are practicing. And I think that's going to help grow our, our evidence base as well. I, I love the idea of the practice-based um, evidence because I do think that there is an experience of urgency, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and we'll talk later perhaps about notions of progress and meaningful progress, uh, but I I feel urgency is kind of this primary driver. My whole goal is to make myself unnecessary to my students. Now, what is the most efficient way and effective way for me to do that? And if somebody has a practice that could make that happen better, faster, <laughs> uh, more for, for my students, I would want to know that. And I'd want to know that tomorrow. So I love the idea of capturing what works in practice and it does make for messier evidence but not less valuable evidence when that big overarching goal is we're baking cookies and we're getting the heck out right right right. yeah I think you're seeing a paradigm shift with um with Mm -hmm. pediatrics with speech sound disorders and there's been new norms that have come out in, I want to say, 2014 about when consonants are acquired. And really, that's shifted the paradigm to um, suggest the earlier we start working on those speech sound errors, um, the better. And so perhaps if we front load the intensity of treatment, we won't have as many 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, middle schoolers with persistent speech sound disorders. So I think that's been one recent example of um, really just a great marriage of looking at what is the research showing and then how is that impacting practice. Can I give one from the medical side? Absolutely, please. We used to think that, you know, whenever we had a concussion patient come in and they were seeing the full team, PTOTST or ST at the top, um, each one of us would do an intake and each one of us would say, okay, now tell us about your accident. And each time that patient would have to go through the details of this traumatic event. And now we are doing um, concierge concussion treatment. So the concussion team I'm on, um, whoever takes the lead, um, I mean, if, if, the, if the patient's needs are physical therapy, then the physical therapist would take the lead. If it's the language, then the speech pathologist. Um, we have that initial intake and one time we ask the patient those details Mm. and we share them with the rest of the team. So we're not re-traumatizing this patient over and over. And so see, these are some very important advances and that's why podcasts are important and, and conventions are important. And it just, these, these connections and these conversations. So change takes place, the sharing of knowledge and the change and the ideas. Very good. Well, I'm looking at our um, our list of kind of brainstormed questions, and I think one of the things I, I'm curious about, I know many of your listeners are fresh out of graduate school or within maybe five years of graduate school training, and so I was thinking it'd be interesting if we reflected on what what did we rely on most from graduate school? Oh, I have a great story for that. Okay, Lynn go Durgan for it. Was my supervisor, and I was all ready for a session. It was a, a little kiddo, and I had my 
materials. I had my lesson plan written down. I had everything ready to go. Just as I was walking in, she took it all from me and left me with a paper, a string, a pencil, and maybe one other thing. <laughs> and everything that I did in that session had to be with those materials. Wow. And I needed to have my lesson planned, my lesson plan in my head. And I think, I mean, I'm good with origami. So we we did origami for a lot of that session and we targeted those sounds. And so I learned how to step away from the materials and the props and really focus on what I was, what I was targeting. Mm. That's a cool story. That is so yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, a lot of times students in their first clinical sessions will say like, what am I supposed to do? Right. And I think your supervisor just pushed that to the, it's not, what are you supposed to do, but what are you trying to accomplish here? Or what are you trying to learn? Well, funny add on when Lynn Larrigan passed away, she had an Irish band funeral. So, I mean, down the street, singing, dancing, whooping, hollering. Oh, fun. That was her funeral. Celebrating her life. Yep. <laughs> nice. How about you, Katie? What did you rely on most from your graduate school training? I felt really solid in my ability to understand what my cueing was and what it was doing. Uh, I think I think it's important to know why we do what we do and mm -hmm. how our role is different from other service providers in whatever context we are working in. And right out of graduate school, I was able to understand kind of what my cue delivery was and how I was helping or not helping and what my goal was. So I liked having a, a pretty grounded foundation in being able to adjust cueing and prompts and um, where does where does a gesture end and a visual cue begin. I, I felt like I was solid in that. And I, I can't necessarily point to a single experience that got me ready for that, but I know that was hugely important for me, especially when I was trying to write those first notes. I think, you know, <laughs> that can be a little tricky when you're first getting started, that documentation piece to reflect the skilled aspect of service provision. Yeah, that's great. I was thinking about, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, one Facebook group that I'm on, and I think there have been different iterations of this question about what do you wish you had learned in graduate school? And often it seems like more about this, more about this, more practical, less theory. Um, and first of all, I'm sympathetic to the plight of graduate schools with a, a limited amount of courses and credits and time to pack in the breadth of what is just a huge focus of our careers. Mm -hmm. um, but I was thinking about, as you were talking, how that foundational process really was something you grabbed, used, and applied from then on. And my answer is somewhat similar. I was thinking about um, my writing skills and especially focusing on describing behaviors and not jumping to interpretation too quickly. So not he was being naughty, but he got out of his chair three times, like you know, that. sort of 
that. And I think that's, that was something that really served me moving forward in terms of assessments and also really um, in some cases, just stepping back from an emotional response to a behavior and being able to look more neutrally at it. Yeah. And separating what we perceive from what we see, you know, what we see right. is he got out of his chair three times. Our perception is that means he's um, agitated. That means he's, but we, we don't know that because we're not ever living inside that client slash patient slash student's head. And so right. I just, I, I think that's a really solid foundational piece to have. That's really cool that, that you had that right at the outset. You guys, I just get goosebumps with our conversation. I love, I love this. But my fishbowl friends, we are out of time. <laughs> I feel like I should make a goldfish face when you say that. My fishbowl <laughs> friends. <laughs> That's right. SpongeBob. No. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Uh, oh, love SpongeBob. We will continue on with episode three. All right. Thank you so oh. much, Maddie. What a privilege. This is, yes, this is fun. I do have the number episode five coming up. Call in, call 612-361-9810, 612-361-9810, and leave a voicemail with your question for, uh, for us to answer. It's going to be a lot of fun. We want to hear from you. We like puzzlers. I heart puzzlers. <laughs> And we always have an answer, whether it's going to be correct <laughs> or complete, we will have an answer. Right. And we are having fun. That's true too. Which is what we should be doing. Thank you so well, thank much. You. Thank, thank you. you. I hope today's conversation has created some aha moments for you and motivated you to become a better SLP continuing to connect some of those missing links between what you know and how to use that knowledge. Thank you for downloading the missing link for SLP's podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love you to subscribe, rate it, and leave a short review. Also, please share an episode with a friend. Together, we can raise awareness and help more SLPs find and connect those missing links and get the information needed to help them feel confident in their patient care every step of the way. Follow me on Instagram and join the Fresh SLP community on Facebook. Show notes are always available, so come learn more at freshslp.com. Let's make those connections. You got this.